2: to create a listener
0: account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
1: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel, and today I'm speaking with Tomás Somers-Sandoval about his book, Latinos at the Golden Gate, Creating Community and Identity in San Francisco published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2013. Tomas is an assistant professor of history and Chicano-Latino studies at Pomona College in Claremont, California. His research and teaching interests include modern U.S. history, Latino history, oral history, and the social movements of the 1960s. His book, Latinos at the Golden Gate, is the first historical monograph devoted to this important community in San Francisco. Hello, Tomas, and welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
2: Hey, David. Thanks for having me.
1: Thanks so much. I wonder if you would uh, begin our conversation today by talking a little bit about yourself and uh, your background.
2: A pleasure, yeah. Well, um, as you said, I teach at Pomona College. Uh, I'm uh, an associate professor there with a joint appointment in history and uh, Chicano Latino Studies. And it's sort of a a, a full-circle turn for me. Uh, I'm a a Southern Californian. Uh, I was born uh, uh, down here, born in Monterey Park and was raised in a town called La Puente, Hmm.
0: uh,
2: which is about, uh, you know, uh, 12, 14 miles east of East LA. Right. And uh, I went to, uh, for undergraduate college, I went to Claremont McKenna College, which is one of the Claremont colleges, a cluster of liberal arts colleges uh, where Pomona is one of them. And, uh, then I went on to, uh, grad school at, uh, UC Berkeley, uh, got my master's of PhD, and my first, uh, teaching job was at California State, uh, University Monterey Bay, mm-hmm. uh, and then I was there for a few years, uh, before coming here to Pomona, so sort of a, a homecoming to come back to the Claremont Colleges. And, uh, my, my, uh, folks are, are, uh, also, uh, they're East LA, uh, born and raised, uh, mm-hmm. and, Grandparents are all uh, immigrants from mexico, uh, so we're a pretty southern californian family uh, i'm a little odd I know that <laughs> an l a kid is writing a book on san francisco um, but uh yeah so uh, we're we're very much uh, in many ways uh, rooted here a lot of our family stories here uh, and uh, a lot of our family story too is kind of involved in education i mean mm-hmm. I have sisters, I have an older sister, uh, who is also a professor of Chicano Studies. Wow. Uh, her name is Isal Noval. Uh, she teaches at Cal State Northridge. Oh, and uh-huh. I have a younger sister, uh, who works actually at your campus, works at USC in, uh, in, uh, uh, housing, uh, student affairs. Oh wow. And, uh, um uh, but growing up, my my older sister and I uh, grew up with uh, you know parents in a household where no one had a college degree, and
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: it was in the '80s that we all sort of started uh, getting educated together. You know, my uh, my mom started going to community college, my dad uh, started uh, going to uh, college, and uh, by that time, uh, you know, my sister was applying to colleges, and then I shortly after. So in uh, that sort of 20-30 year period now we all have college degrees. You know, my awesome. My mom even went to get a master's degree. My little sister got a master's, and then as I mentioned, my older sister is a is a professor too. So we're a we're a very pro education family. You know,
1: <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, Cal State Northridge, and uh, my family has quite uh, some strong ties there. My actually, my father and my uncle attended. Um, I think before it was Cal State I think it was called Valley College and uh, right, yeah. they took early classes with uh, Rudy, Rudy Acuna and uh, got involved in uh, you know some of those the, the, the early type of uh, development of Chicano Studies programs and uh, both just mentioned how it was became really a, a jumping off point for, for their careers. My father eventually became a, an educator and, and elementary school administrator and my uncle became a an attorney working on social justice issues, uh, particularly with farm workers in similar communities. So, uh, oh wow, I love that connection.
2: Yeah, and and right there, right? I mean, in, in a nutshell, I mean, one of the the kind of the ways that Chicano studies has an impact. You know, it's uh, it's bigger than just training people like you and me to be academics.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Oh, definitely.
2: It really does make an impact on on folks working in a whole host of areas.
1: No, that's so true, and I love uh, I love hearing the stories. Whenever uh, I hear a lot of those, actually, and I'm sure you probably share this when when people ask you what you do, what you're interested in. Oh, you're a historian what you study. Uh, typically, when I, I talk to a number of uh, Latinos, a number of them will tell me how much uh, learning about and studying Chicano history or Latino history really inspired them into either some type of public service or education or something you know along the you know professions along those lines. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You know, you mentioned how it's it's kind of odd that a a SoCal boy or L.A. boy would uh, end up writing a history of uh, San Francisco. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about that, how you came to write uh, Latinos at the Golden Gate?
2: Yeah, well, you know, the, the story of the book really begins kind of the summer before I started my grad work at Berkeley. Um, I had to uh, I had to go find a place to live in the Bay Area, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you go away to grad school, and I really didn't, uh, you know, have any any strong connections there except for some real good friends that I that I knew from college that had graduated the year before. And one of my good friends lived in the Castro in San Francisco, right? And uh, and so I went to go stay with him while I while I looked for an apartment over in the East Bay. And if you know about San Francisco, um, uh, where where my friend was staying, uh, the way to get to uh, Berkeley in the East Bay, uh, uh, across the way and back into San Francisco is through BART, mm-hmm. the public transportation system. All right. And if you're gonna go to the Castro that way, you pretty much have to get off in an area called the Mission District. The Mission, mm-hmm. Uh, and you get off on 16th and then you walk, uh, right up to 16th. And so going back and forth for that, that, the better part of a, a week, I guess, I, I, stayed while I was looking for an apartment. Um, that was my first connection, uh, my first real connection as, as, as an adult. Uh, to, to the mission, uh, to, to the mission district, which is the, the, the Latino barrio of San Francisco. Right. And I would, you know, get off on that on uh, 16th Street and Mission Station, and I would start walking. Uh, and, and along the way, you know, I'd, I'd grab a coffee somewhere, or I'd, I'd stop and buy something in a store to eat. and right. It was really clear that there was something uh, very familiar about it, and, and something also a little different. Right? I mean, it was very familiar to what I knew, uh, as a kid in, in East Los Angeles. It was very familiar to other Southern California barrios that, that I was familiar with. But there Mm -hmm. were lots of things that left a very different cultural Imprint there. Uh, right. Sometimes you could see it in the food, differences in food, uh, differences in the white people who were speaking Spanish, differences in the things being sold in stores,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, and so that that sort of you know planted maybe in the in the back of my mind that there was this community here and that it was a very interesting and dynamic one and that it had a, a story um, that I was interested in at least. And a couple months later. Uh, when I took my first uh, uh, one of my first graduate classes in my first semester, I, I, I took a research seminar with uh, Professor Waldo Martin, who ended up becoming my my advisor,
0: mm-hmm.
2: my main dissertation advisor as well. And uh, in that research seminar, they you know you you just have to write a history research project, right, and, right. and I didn't I didn't know how to do any of that, you know. I mean, I was so new, I didn't <laughs> even know what they meant by that, and. Um, and, and I was all like, I, I don't know what to do. And he's all like, uh, how about something on Latinos in San Francisco?
0: And I was yeah. like, oh yeah. Yes. We started
2: talking about the mission district and, and there you go. And it, 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 it led into a, a first of a paper. And then, uh, over the next couple of years, I had made that decision to, to use that as my dissertation topic as well. Um, so yeah, I tell, I tell the story in the book as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I have a, a, a I was I was sort of homesick, you know, in the right, first right. first couple months. And I mean, I don't know if 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 people uh, you know share my my kind of story in that sense. How many Southern Californians go up to San Francisco or San Franciscan Latinos coming down to to Los Angeles? But that that familiarity and that difference is uh, is is a, is a kind of a good thing. It's a very rich kind of tension in a way. Because right, that familiarity really eased any kind of of homesickness that I had. Right, but right. the differences were just so so uh, challenging sometimes, right? Like, down here in Southern California, I mean, even where I grew up, you know, 15, 20 miles away from, uh, you know, Los Angeles, like, you don't have to struggle to find Mexican food in
0: Superman. Right, food. right.
2: <laughs> I mean, here in, the, in Southern California, we have this area, the San Gabriel Valley. The San, mm-hmm. San Gabriel Valley is, for all practical purposes a brown suburb, you know, right. or a collection of brown suburbs, you know, and mm-hmm. it has been for my entire life. And so, you know, you can find dried chiles in in Albertsons or, you know, Vons, um, but up in, in the Bay Area, man, I, I just, I, it was very hard to find simple staples like that, you know?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so so when I was trying to, to you know, ease the home ease the homesickness by making some familiar food, Um, it turned out that in Berkeley, uh, I couldn't find any of the things that I needed to, to make like enchiladas, right?
0: Right, right.
2: couldn't find the dry chiles. And so I, I finally just went to the mission district, you know, and, and it was standing, standing in line to to buy those, you know, that, that was really getting us. At that same time, I was sort of thinking what I was going to do as a topic for that class and, Mm -hmm. um, just sort of the coincidence of everything sort of speaking to me, you know, the streets of San Francisco speaking to me. Right. Um. So that, that's how I first came to the topic, and then it just it just grew into the
1: dissertation. Mm, mm-hmm. Well, and I um, I appreciate that you mentioned the the both the familiarity of the Latino barrio in in San Francisco, the Mission District, uh, uh, as well as the differences, because that's a, a theme that you pull out throughout the book. You know the the similarities and differences between Latino communities in uh, San Francisco as they are opposed to those in in Los Angeles or Southern California and uh you know i've had some similar experiences even just in my moves uh from i've uh, whether it be from you know san diego where i grew up up to la kind of where my my parent my dad my father at least grew up here in searching for you know similar cuisines you know you just notice differences you know in san diego for example uh most of the tacos you get uh, are are made with yellow corn tortillas and, uh, at least in the part of Valley that we live in, uh, most of the tacos we end up buying are made with white corn tortillas. You know, it's just, it's a very uh-huh. small difference, but, uh, it, it kind of speaks to, I think, on a, on a tiny bit, you know, that, uh, what you point out, that there are, there are similarities and differences, um, amongst Latino communities, uh, even in, in something, you know, when you look at a state like California, you know, maybe to outsiders, Latinos in California may be a rather homogenous population or they would assume that in Latino cuisine or mixed American cuisine would be very similar, you know, throughout a region like Southern California. But you find these very interesting differences, you know, particularly as you as you cover in your book, you know, these through a series of migrations uh, that occur, you know, from the middle of the 19th century throughout the 20th century, you have a much more diversifying uh, Latino population that is, you know, coming to intermix with the old population and, and making something quite new. And so, again, that's something that I, I appreciate that you bring out in your your book, and something that yeah, resonated well, with you. me
2: yeah I mean that, that was I mean, as you can tell from the the story I just finished, I mean that, that's kind of the heart of, of what's underneath the whole the whole project, right mm-hmm. I mean, uh, not only uh, just through the the dissertation but also over the the many years later, the ten years later that it took to develop it into a book. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really understanding that heterogeneity, but also uh, a really impactful part of that for me was uh, beginning to think about that heterogeneity in specific ways. Um, really trying to understand what, what what what's the what's the material condition, what's the material context mm-hmm. that allows that to happen, uh, that that sustains that, and also also shapes that over over a long period of time. Right. Um, but also looking at how that heterogeneity can exist even inside of of as you're mentioning here. even I mean, inside of one ethnic group, right? Mm-hmm. That there can be differences. Uh, in the way that uh, that an ethnicity plays out spatially and culturally inside of an urban space, uh, just just because there are different urban histories, just because there are different contexts to that, right? Um, so what being Mexican American in Los Angeles is different than being Mexican American in San Francisco, Certainly, And as right? As well as sharing a lot of of commonalities, that that trying to get underneath that story was a was a big part of what I was uh, very much interested in, you know um and and in a lot of ways, it sort of sh- shaped the book in in ways that I couldn't even understand as a as a graduate student mm-hmm. I mean, when I started out my my first inkling is I got involved in this community and I started to connect very easily. With with uh, a cultural history and arts history and a political history, mm-hmm. right? those things were very much alive. And uh, I'm talking about the 1994 is that first semester when I'm writing a research paper.
0: All right. Um, mm-hmm. But
2: I'm I'm living in the Bay Area in the in the in the 90s in the right. before before the first dot com dot com boom. Right. Right. Um, and by the time I'm I'm finishing my dissertation and leaving the Bay Area, uh, the the primary story in the mission is gentrification as, right. as it is now. Uh, the, the exodus of Latino communities, the influx of, of other non-Latinos, the escalation in rents and all, all these kinds of things. Um, and so very, very easily I connected really right away with a, with a history that was very much alive, you know. Mm -hmm. It it was, but that certainly stretched back, uh, to, to the 70s, to, to maybe the 60s. Um, San Francisco is a city that's so rich in its, in its history. Uh, in ways that, that are hard for people to understand, I think, if they're not from there. I mean, mm. e- everyday people are historians of San Francisco.
0: Right, right uh, now. Like I, people, I agree. Every,
2: everyday people have an archive inside of their closet, inside of their home, on their bookshelves, you
0: know, mm-hmm.
2: uh, in their photo albums. I mean, it, it is a city that is just so, so rich in a collective sense, uh, with a sense of its history. And, and those initial things that I connected to in the city r- really you know, exposed me to to this one idea very early on, which is that there were tensions between historic tensions and even present day tensions sometimes between uh, Mexican American population and and another Latino population, right? Um, that is between you know Chicanos and Latinos, right? Mm-hmm. And the the and the sort of political and cultural tensions of that. And I was I was very interested in that, and I thought, oh. You know, uh, after a, a, few, a few weeks working on that, I was all like, you know, I think the story here is is how Latinos come into the United States, into a place like San Francisco, and come into a place like uh, a barrio of the Mission District, right. and because of the numbers and cultural dominance of Mexican-Americans, sort of assimilate to being Chicano more than assimilate to being American.
0: mm mm-hmm. And,
2: and, and that, that question was a very academic one, right? Yes. And it was a little bit dependent on the way that people defined themselves, you know, and terminology and all these. And it, it it took me a long time to sort of work beyond that academic stuff um, to really uh, – it was really through the oral history process of just talking to people, spending mm-hmm. time with people, getting more familiar with the community. That you realize that the story there isn't the – it wasn't any of these things that I was, you know, in, in a sense being primed to, to talk about um, in, in the city of San Francisco, that the stories were a little bit different. Right. And you, mm-hmm. you had to sort of begin those stories in, a, in an authentic way by by beginning them and exploring them on the terms of the community members themselves. And so, as as this as this project took shape, it became much more of a community history,
0: mm-hmm. in, in,
2: in, in every way, shape, or form. Not just about the fact that I was writing about a community, but also that uh, that my my thinking, my analysis was was very much reciprocal. It was a back and forth with with members of that community and with constituencies in that community. Um. So yes,
1: right. Well, and getting to those material conditions, right, and the material specificities of. The Latino heterogeneity in San Francisco. Uh you you start the book and you, you state in the introduction, you make this connection to this long history of European imperialism on uh, the development and transformation of the city itself, as well as its demographics, its social and racial order, and its ensuing migrations from Latin America, um that, you know, even predate the gold rush. Uh so uh, and how this is a consequence of U.S. hegemony, European hegemony, in, in the region. So I was wondering if we can start by talking about how, uh, you know, the, the California Gold Rush it holds this seminal and you know, dare I say, sacred place, right, in the history of not just the city but the state of California and the American Eden, West, yeah. right, in the American West. And so what you you start to tell is, you know, a history of Latinos and, you know, Latin American gold seekers or Argonauts, right, uh, within this. movement in the story becomes a a kind of a, a, uh, the gold rush sparks this global migration, uh, really which some some scholars argue is like this, one of the the major periods of global migration that ends up in now what we call globalization. Um, But you tell us from the perspective of Latin Americans. So will you talk a bit more about how do the experiences of early Latin American argonauts or gold seekers challenge the traditional story? Uh, that we've heard about the Gold Rush, with all of its accompanying imagery and mythology, and you know, importance to both the sense of you know California's identity and to the nation's identity.
2: Yeah, well, it's a, that's a great question. You know, I think one of the, the real sort of rich ways that the scholarship on the Gold Rush has evolved over the last you know twenty twenty five years. Is an understanding uh, that it's a lot of uh, economic networks that facilitate the movements of people, uh, mm-hmm. the movement of of, of capital, uh, the, and and the growth of of this this Western economy, this Pacific metropolis, as, as Bancroft calls it, right. Mm-hmm. And and it was it was really exploring that, that that allowed me to expose a lot of the Latino connections. I mean, one of the keys of the period to me, but also the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. Was that there is a a reason why people from certain parts of Latin America are coming to certain parts of the United States, right? Right. It's a, it's a, it's an old sort of adage, right? We are here because you were there, right? Mm -hmm. There are, there are networks, there are political, economic, and social cultural networks. That connects specific parts of Latin America to specific parts of the United States, and and beginning with that sort of as a, as an understanding um, or developing that understanding as a grad student, but beginning with that as as I turned it into a book uh, was was understanding what are the particular kinds of ways that the political economy of San Francisco, uh, first the political economy of a bay that is not yet the city of San Francisco, and then the early city of San Francisco connect itself to uh latin america and to which parts of latin america um you start to see that there is this interconnectivity between uh port towns in south mm-hmm. america and in mexico uh, to to the golden gate to the, the the bay of san francisco to yerba buena and and uh in a lot of ways the the gold rush, which you know in, in older sort of literature is seen as this, and even in the romantic common understanding of California's history, is seen as this, this, this open, free movement of people, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, now it's it's it, the wealth is there for anybody who wants to go get it, right? And and as though there's some sort of equal start to that. Um, that that the gold rush really isn't founded on on any of those kinds of myths. That that at very at the very beginning. It is the the network advantage of people in the hemisphere already, primarily Latin Americans, Mm -hmm. uh, who already have this economic uh, contact uh, with the Bay, uh, who are able to get there uh, quicker, who are the first uh, gold rush uh, uh, explorers. Right? Uh, You know, it's a it's a it's a ship from Chile that that uh, goes into the the port of Mm Valparaiso.
0: That's
2: the first one bringing a a bag of gold dust and nuggets. You know, uh, proof that there is a gold rush happening. There are Latin Americans from Chile and from Peru and from Mexico who are going in to San Francisco Bay and then out into the gold fields, um, before, before the U.S. East Coast is even hearing about it, right? So this is the year before the 49 right, the 40 meters, right. you know? Exactly. And, and so, so, the, the, these networks advantaged, uh, uh, people in Latin America. But also there were very specific ways that, that networks advantaged people from specific ports in the United States as well. I mean, one of the stories I tell is, is, is that passage, right? I mean, if you're not coming across uh, what is the present-day uh, continental United States, if you're not coming across the, the nation east to west, um, then there are a few ways that you get to San Francisco. And a, a common one is going around the Cape mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and up through the Pacific into, into the Bay. Uh, a much safer uh, form of passage uh, sometimes than crossing the country. Um, and another is that you can go down to Central America and cross over in various parts, Panama and Nicaragua, you cross over through the jungle on foot and then come back up. Uh, and so uh, people from the East Coast, uh, European Americans from the East Coast, are are also coming through Latin America as part of their as part of their story of coming to to the golden gate of coming to the gold rush uh, and coming through san francisco and in a lot of ways they carry with them their their you know there's there's all these little sources of diaries and letters where you get to see that they're carrying with them uh, a lot of their preconceived notions of race and social fitness uh as Mm -hmm. they come into san francisco and this is in many ways part of a generation who are the founders of the city of san francisco who are going to be the ones who predominate inside of the social order in san francisco and so um that that part of of coming into uh the the city and and building the city uh, is also in some ways you know uh dependent upon latin america and 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 involves latin america in a big way um it's a it's a it's a way that I, I I found in the sources to be able to tell this story that was uh, really, frankly, really um, exciting for me, because
0: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> most of the time I'm writing a history of Latinos in San Francisco, it, it is it, it is like looking for needles in, in a haystack, right, right. Um, and and that, that, that's the case for a couple reasons. Some of them are just, are just the context of research in San Francisco. There, there are there's not just the, the major uh, fire that we all know about in 1906,
0: the, mm-hmm.
2: the earthquake and fire of 1906, but there are repeated instances of the city burning down throughout the 19th century. Right. And with that uh, is is a loss of historical records. Right. Um, right. Um, there, it, it, there, are, there are challenges to doing uh, the history of San Francisco before the the, the 19 teens, you know, and, and and that is a big one. Um, but the other one is 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 the the product of numbers. Um, Latinos were were only a prominent population demographically uh, until. The gold rush brought in this avalanche of of people from everywhere Mm -hmm. um, that that made uh, this part of California uh, turn more into, you know, became more like, uh, you know, the American ideal of a white population, a European white uh, population, much quicker than other parts of California, right? Right. Yes. As we know, inside of Chicano history, Mexican, uh, ethnic Mexicans maintain uh, numeric superiority in Southern California for another generation or two. Right. Even, even in a political power. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, that's almost wiped out overnight in San Francisco. And, and that opening uh, that the gold rush provides also allowed for a very diverse population to come into San Francisco, including a lot of Chinese, as we know, who are a huge part of the yes. city. And in many ways, the, the I mean, San Francisco is, is not a homogenous uh, city in this time period, even when it comes to their ideas of race. Um, but the, the the sort of more familiar uh, white supremacist notions in San Francisco, um, the the target of their you know uh, venom are not Latinos. Um, are they are Chinese? Mm-hmm. They are Chinese Americans, the ethnic Chinese population that is living inside of the city, who outnumber uh, all Latinos combined, and who have a much more prominent place inside of the the life of the city in many ways. That opens them up to a lot more. Uh, of that of that venom of, that, of being targets of, of sort of the, the main target of white supremacy in San Francisco in this period so so even in those in those other ways of finding sources about Latinos which is through the the mainstream you know uh, political system and mainstream press um, are very hard because most of the time when non-white populations are popping up even in negative ways uh, the population is popping up are are Chinese Americans hmm so it was—it was really hard to sort of you know find all these kinds of ways of of talking about Latinos in in this time period. Um, but th- this was this was uh, one of the the ways that I could do it in, in a in a way that proved really fruitful to the argument as well.
1: Right, and one of the way you, you you do this is you know to, to describe and talk about this population, like as you mentioned, because it was so heterogeneous in the in the beginning, you know, beginning with um whether it be Chileans and, and Sonorans uh and uh Peruvians, right, is the first kind of uh gold seekers and then evolving over time through various waves of migration is through this concept of pan ethnic identity uh or what in Latin Chicano Latino studies we, we refer to as Latinidad. Um mm-hmm. so can you talk a bit more about how Latino Americanos in San Francisco began to forge a type of panethic unity and community particularly you, you mentioned the role of language and religion and so you can talk can you talk about how that developed and, and how that helped this community not just to form but to you know assuage the experience of migration yeah. and, and transnational life and and local discrimination as you began to to, to mention
2: yeah well you know the the, the the book couldn't have, have happened, uh, um, I mean I would have abandoned the topic a long time ago probably, uh, if not before the dissertation phase and shortly after. Uh, the, the book certainly couldn't have happened if not for the, the story of a church.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: a church called Our, Our Lady of Guadalupe, La Señora de Guadalupe. Um, and, and uh, Guadalupe Church, uh, was, uh, the first Spanish language national parish inside of the West and what that is, is if, if your listeners know about Catholic parishes. Most Catholic parishes are, are geographic. Uh, and, and that is they're, they're responsible for a certain neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Um,
2: and uh, a national parish is one that is meant to establish and meet the cultural linguistic needs of an entire population. Um, so they cross over geographic boundaries. Uh, Our Lady of Guadalupe is a Catholic parish, a Spanish language Catholic parish that was meant to serve the, the Spanish uh, language population of the city of San Francisco, and it's founded in the 1870s. It's the product of uh, an effort by local elites, primarily political mm-hmm. elites, people in consulate offices, and people in the business community, to to raise money and and to to get this church built in, in cooperation with the Catholic Church. And there's a you know a whole story of sort of the context of that and the background of that, but uh, that I tell in the book. But I think uh, one of the the Wonderful things is it's one of these early instances of, of what we would call in our academic language, Latinidad, of, of this pan-Latin American uh, descent identity. A- and taking root inside of their, their institution building, right? Again, mm-hmm. I'm, 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 I've always been more interested in sort of the material context of these things uh, than anything else. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and this is uh, certainly one of those things as they built this church, and as they created a space that on a weekly basis, people came as Spanish-speaking Catholics in the city of San Francisco, um, they naturally formulated an identity of themselves bound to that church, right in a reciprocal way, and in a reciprocal way to each other as well. Right, so the story of a uh, Guadalupe church is is a story of one of those places, and this is sort of the way the way that i was i mean that I approached the book right is that it's hard to well impossible just for the historical record to tell a, a simple you know a chronological um you know sweeping history of Latinos in the city right and all of its diversity right um and instead, of what I really tried to focus in on were these moments. Mm -hmm. Uh, where, where these contexts and these moments where a pan Latin American, a pan ethnic, uh, identity and, and context could take shape inside of uh, San Francisco, looking at these, these institutions and looking at these movements and moments where this happened. And the church was certainly, uh, the first one in the city in a, in a clear dynamic way. If not, you know, perhaps the first one <laughs> in, in the West or even in the United States as a whole, right? right. I mean, I think one of the, one of the contexts, one of the fundamental contexts of, of having this story, one of the, I mean, one of the beginning things that has to be if you're telling a story of a diverse, heterogeneous Latin American descent population coming together and developing some kind of cohesive community with one another. Mm-hmm. One of the beginning points has to be the existence of that diverse heterogeneous population.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And San Francisco has that because of the gold rush, because of its prolonged 19th century financial and commercial position inside of the Pacific. It has that continual flow uh, that I write about in the book um, uh, where where they have that that population. So um, no other place in, in the United States has that kind of diasporic, representation of Latin America um, within its boundaries at that time. Um and and I think it's important too that this is a a diverse population in terms of class, of economic standards, Mm -hmm. access to capital and political influence. I mean this this couldn't have happened if if everybody who was coming were just uh farm workers. Right. Everybody who were coming were just manual laborers, right? Railroad workers. Um, part of this story uh, uh, taking place, part of this story playing out, is really reliant upon uh, um, um, an elite class, uh, mm-hmm. a, 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 an emergent uh, sort of you know bourgeoisie class um, who who can all not only bring funds together but also have the political clout to get something done. Right, and that that says a lot about that that commercial linkage story again too, right, uh, with with San Francisco and parts of Latin America so the church becomes this this uh, central part of of the of the story um um how how that church uh took shape and the kinds of of uh um, both struggles uh that that existed in them i mean the 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 documents uh there there you know in the archives uh, about that church the newspapers that detail uh the the social life and, and cultural life and religious life of that church they they all detail both uh, the successes of, of cohesive community formation
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, where people are coming together for what they called, for example, unified Spanish masses, right. uh, a unity mass or a unified mass where the different contingents, the, the Mexican, the ethnic Mexican population. And when I say ethnic Mexican, I mean like. Mexican-Americans as well as, right. as Mexicanos born in Mexico, right?
0: Mm-hmm, right.
2: Mm-hmm. Regardless of where they're born. Or regardless of where they're born. The ethnic Mexican population and Chilean population came together for uh, an annual mass to celebrate the independences of both countries, right? right. So we get, we get instances like that where, where there's uh, evidence of, of that cohesion, of that new cultural formation. And uh, all those records also tell you know persistent stories of, of rivalries. Of, of, of fights and struggles between these these distinct ethnic uh, constituencies of the church too, um, where there are are very strong, uh, in particular through the early 20th century, um, really strong rivalries between uh, an ethnic Mexican contingent and a Salvadoran and Nicaraguan one, mm-hmm. uh, who who have battles over the space, so battles over the identity of the church uh, played out, battles over you know priests and and, and who, who who they think priests are showing favoritism to, all right? Um, you know all these all these stories exist too at the same time, um, so it, it becomes this wonderful uh, microcosm in many ways of of the of the Latino San Francisco as a whole, you know, sort of playing out inside this, this church. And then as I read about uh, in in that chapter and in the chapter after um, Guadalupe Church, uh, which is is today the building is still there. It's, it's no longer a church, um, but it, it closed. It ceased being a Catholic church in
0: 1992.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, th- th- that right there is a is a great uh, indicator of its success over right. the long period of time. Right, that for over a century, for uh, uh, over a century, it existed as as the, the the Latino church inside of San Francisco, or at least a functional Latino church in San Francisco. Um, but it's it's the building is located. Uh, on Broadway uh, in what is present-day uh, Chinatown,
0: mm-hmm.
2: near, near where Chinatown butts up against North Beach. And uh, that, that church uh, uh, closes, uh, essentially, because most of the population who lives anywhere near it uh, are not Latino anymore, uh, right. and that's exceedingly the case by the 1940s and 1950s as Chinatown sort of expands out. Um, but also uh, by the mid 20th century, there are uh, clusters of Latinos living inside of the Mission District, and clusters of Latinos living in other parts of the cities, and also Spanish-speaking priests serving parishes all over the Bay Area, not mm-hmm. not just in the East Bay either, but also multiple parishes in San Francisco, and all that makes the need of the church uh, sort of sort of dissipate over time. So that's why it finally closes in '92. Um, but but up into that in the high point of its period in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century until that that uh, ethnic transformation happens in the in the immediate community surrounding it uh, Guadalupe also becomes the hub of one of the first Latino barrios in the city. Right. Um, a good measure, uh, a, a probably a majority of its constituency uh, of its parishioners were living within the the immediate geography of the church and. Um, you also see the birth of a bunch of businesses, uh, that, that start to take place there. Businesses that are, that are, you know, ones we'd expect. Supermarkets, restaurants,
0: mm-hmm. um,
2: but also dance halls, you know, lawyers, doctors, printers that are, that are all publishing in Spanish. Um, it becomes the Latino, barrio uh, of the, the Mexican colony, as they call it, or the Spanish colony, as the press sometimes calls it, uh, in San Francisco. So that, that church,
0: uh, actually, uh, another,
2: you know, vibrant, demonstration of its success is the fact that it creates what every, anybody would call a Latino community, right? Mm-hmm. A, a diverse, heterogeneous uh, group of people living together in the same spaces, you know, patronizing many of the same businesses.
1: Yeah, and that story I found really interesting because, uh, you know, it, it is quite unique in in the telling of uh, for other narratives of Chicano or Latino history, particularly as we compare it to Southern California, which, as you mentioned, already had a uh, pretty large Mexicano or, or what were then called you know, kind of the, their elite were the Californios, but had a strong Mexicano population as well as a, a Catholic tradition. Uh, you know, you have, you know, the visible edifices of all the the missions that ran up and down, you know, the coast of California primarily. And, and, but Really predominate a lot of the Southern California landscape. And in San Francisco, although you, you know, there, there was a mission, but you know, you, you didn't have that much of a, a sense of a strong Latino presence. So I really did enjoy, uh, your focus on, on how this effort to, to build the Guadalupe church and that becoming the, the center, the focal point, And at the uh, same time as a manifestation of a growing Latino community and the, the relationship the two had in both reflecting the emerging Latino culture and also creating it, you know, and that's what I, I thought was really, really interesting about this part of the story, that the, oh, the well, building, it comes to kind of predate, yeah. you know, both kind of like serve as a prologue to what's coming, you know, as far as the, the Latino, the, the church itself, right, as a manifestation in the physical space of, of the city, but then it continues to evolve, and as far as, I mean, the Latino culture, you know, of the city, as you mentioned, with the demographics that continue to change, uh, other waves of, of Latin American migrants come, um, and other Latino populations uh, grow and develop throughout the city, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so one of the primary themes of your book, you know, addresses, and we mentioned this earlier, addresses the role of European imperialism in the formation of, you know, commercial communication and kinship networks, that worked in tandem with migration to establish this diverse Latino community in San Francisco, and this was particularly true in in the early to mid 20th century. Right as the U.S. solidified its its reach and and control in in many ways of the uh, economic and political conditions in Latin America, which which prompted these successive migrations, particularly from Central and South America, which further diversified the Latino population. So Zorni, if you would discuss uh, a, a bit more, this is going along what we were just talking about, the ways in which Latino migrants um Remade home, uh, in San Francisco. You mentioned that, that particular phrase that they were, they remade home. And in many ways, it was because these economic and material conditions, uh, that have brought them there, it kind of prevented them from returning home. Uh, so can you talk a little bit more? more? You, you talked about the church and some of the institutions and businesses they built. Uh, what else did, did the community do? Um, yeah. People.
2: Well, you know, that, that's where, um, that, that's where the, the foundation of the, of the story for me always was, which is uh, to say that m- most of the, the book uh, that's, that's different uh, than the dissertation is what we just talked about, my ability to go back into the 19th and early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Most of My dissertation had focused on, on sort of the post-World War II period up until right. probably the 1970s, and most of that was dependent upon a lot of oral histories. And one of the things that really came out of, out of those oral histories were, were those sorts of very interesting and sort of diverse stories of Latinos who grew up in San Francisco at the time, who migrated to San Francisco at the time. And I can give you an example of, of sort of the, the, uh, the sort of unique differences, I think, is uh, there was a, a woman I interviewed who actually mixed it into, into the book. <laughs> um, because there's like 17, 18 people I interviewed that, that eventually get cut from this. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, uh Alva Sanchez, who has uh, a super interesting story. She's, uh, Mexicana, born in Mexico. Uh, and they, they moved to San Francisco in, the, in the post-war period. And, uh, they live in a part of San Francisco that, uh, does not have a lot of Latinos in it. Mm-hmm. And her story there is very common. Uh, in that post-war, uh, migration movement, uh, there, there is a growing number of Latinos who are moving into this one neighborhood, the mission. Right? The mm-hmm. mission district. Um, but there are also Latinos scattered still in other parts of the city. And unlike a place like Los Angeles, where it would be probably rare uh to see Latinos living in places where there aren't other Latinos, um, there, there are uh, just uh, scores of stories that you hear of people who grew up and they were the only one in their school or one of two in their school. Right. And in many ways, her, her uh, acculturation into, into being uh, an American, her, her familiarity with becoming a San Franciscan as she was a kid, was dependent upon a different sort of racial context than, than other Latinos would have in, in other places. And, and that was really just a function of those numbers and also the unique diversity of the city. Right? So a lot of her becoming aware of her own Latino-ness, of her own Latinidad, in, in a sense, of her own uh, history. Is really through the prism of the African Americans who she grows up with mm-hmm. and the, the 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 political and social lives uh, that they're that they're leading, uh, and she's in a kind of you know racial dynamic, and and the beginning of the civil rights movement becomes very important to her and her community, um, and uh, eventually sort of she starts to make those connections about her own uh, her own family, her own community history, and and her own uh, understanding of of rights that are both denied and and, and owed. Um, th- those kinds of, of interesting ways as people, uh, begin the, the daily life of, of making home, um, of, of having children, of, of having those children be educated inside of these institutions, like the, the school fools, um, um, it, it, that, that was a, 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 part that really just, uh, was always, uh, alive inside of all these oral histories. And as I said, this is the, this was the, the, the rich part of, of San Francisco, um, actually when i when I begun oral histories for this book, this was the second oral history project that I had done in the city i had I had done this uh major oral history project uh for um the 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 city and all these other groups who were farmed out to do the work mm-hmm. um for the 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 demilitarization of the hunter's point uh uh Community, the Bayview Hunters Point community, when right. they, they turned the military base into into uh, local usage, and they needed a community history, and I was hired on to to interview a bunch of uh, local residents in the Bayside Hunters Point um, community, Bayview Hunters Point rather, and um, this was like in the first two years of my grad work, and uh, and 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 that that was my first introduction to to sort of the two things. I, the first, which I mentioned already, that people have such a healthy sense of the city of San Francisco, of their own history and of the, the history of the city at large. Um, but but also uh, that uh, those stories are so interconnected mm-hmm. with one another. Um, the, the stories that, that come through uh, people's memories and the oral histories are, are, are really uh, an important story inside of Latino San Francisco and, and everyone else's <laughs> San Francisco. <laughs> And it's this post-war transformation that's happening in the city. Um, There is a a realignment of where racial populations are living. And a lot of that is coming from the kinds of economic transformations that are happening inside of the city. City, right. Um, I mean, as I mentioned in the book, there are still connections, important connections. You know, coffee and fruit are coming right. into the port of San Francisco every day. Mm-hmm. So as these commodities come, as these connections develop of the United States and parts of Latin America, so too will those people uh, from those countries come and travel um, into the city and come looking for work. Come as part of those companies engaged in work. Um, but there's there's also this other transformation that's happening in San Francisco that is one that we focus on a lot in U.S. history. In the '70s and '80s, which is the 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 loss of a manufacturing base, right? The deindustrialization of the American economy, mm-hmm. uh, where we move from the 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 old bellwethers of of a healthy economy into this this new one that we're familiar with in the early 21st century of a intellectual economy, a technology economy. Um, the, these things are happening uh, uh much much uh. More vibrantly in San Francisco uh, earlier, but also they're happening everywhere uh, before the 1970s. We just don't focus on that. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, as, as we know from from other literature, the, the end of World War II is really the beginning of this of this uh, 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 slow de escalation of the manufacturing base right. in the city, in cities all over the United States, and, and industrial places all over the United States. And certainly, it's happening in San Francisco. There's just a steady decline from the 50s to the 60s and 70s and 80s. And with that changes uh, what people are working in, how they're working, and where they're living as a result of work. You know, the Mission District uh, ends up becoming one of these uh, lack places that has a, a good number of factories uh, employing people inside of the, the city of San Francisco, and Latinos are, are heavy in employees inside of those factories. Um, the Levi's factory, for example, uh, with it, that is now no longer there. Um, but Levi is a company that that was founded in San Francisco, founded right. as a result of the gold rush. Even mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. one of their last uh, factories inside of the city is right there in the Latino barrio. You know, so so you know that 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 change and that, that that tightening up of of the of the labor economy um, in San Francisco is is also bringing in people and and bringing them into specific places where they create you know community. Um, and I and I and I frame that that process of creating community as, as, as homemaking, you know, the mm-hmm. uh, concept of homemaking, you know, this recreation of, of home. Um, you know, and that, that, builds off of a whole bunch of other, you know, literature inside of Chicano Latino studies as well, right. you know, Mexico de Afuera and other concepts. But the, the interesting ways that they, that they recreated that sense of, of, of being, that sense of place, that sense of community, that sense of, of family. And, and also in a certain period of time, uh later in the book also confronting uh through through political and social movements eventually right. uh to to fill the gaps right in the in the things that a community needed and the needs of their community that were going un- unaddressed that were going ignored um, and and then the ways that the movements also become uh, another kind of geography uh the movements become the geography of where where uh, La- pan latino community is also formed
1: Right. And can you, that's, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because that segued right into, um, well, you know, one of the, the, the last questions I wanted to bring up was the first few chapters of the book focus, um, more on the, the building of the sense of Latin, Latinidad through you know, processes of, uh, well, first, you know, migration, community formation, and, and cultural ingenuity and, and coalescence amongst, amidst a, a diverse Latino population. And while that continues, uh, you know, through the post war era, your narrative at least shifts, uh, to focusing more on social and political movements and, uh, in the 60s and, and 70s, um, in particular. And so can you talk about Because this is what I thought was really interesting about that part of the book is that you use Latinidad in, in kind of a, a different way. It's certainly Place-based, and that's what I appreciate. Appreciate um, that you discuss Latinidad as a type of political identity and and activity that was specific to um, San Francisco, at least in the way that 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 this sense of Latinidad emerged. So, can you talk about that a little bit more in regards to the the politics and the activism of? Uh, you know, the, the generations of Latinos in, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, can you talk about how their politics uh, and how you de- can talk about that and how you define it as a form of Latinidad and what that meant? and how yeah. it looked like?
2: I think a, a key to that was approaching this uh, in ways that I, I I felt were were a little bit different than than in the ways that I think the scholarly literature would have pushed me to. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, first to, to think about uh, these things that are uh, in in legitimate ways thought of as identity movements,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: movements that are very much involving identity and, and and both create new identities, also rely upon identity uh, in order for their, their formulation, for their constitution. Um, but to, to think about identity movements differently, to not think about them solely as movements about identity, mm-hmm. right. but to look at what the material sort of space is, again, of of these movements taking place. And that, that really helped me decide which ones to talk about and which ones not to talk about.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, or, or which ones to focus more of my, my energy and time on, uh, rather than others. And I think it were the, the, the kinds of, uh, movements that were really about, uh, people coming together to address certain kinds of, of, uh, spatial and context power relations that, that were the most uh, vibrant for me. And in this way, uh, Latinidad, again, becomes a, a function of a very specific kind of social, political, economic uh, uh, geography. Uh, yes. Uh-huh. And, and the, the, the same is, is sort of true, I think, uh, for the, the last chapter of the book, which focuses on sort of movements for a younger generation, uh, sort of what we might think of as the the Latino baby boomers
0: mm-hmm.
2: of, of San Francisco, you know, give or take, depending on when you define the gender. Right, yes. Um, uh, and, and thinking about those more youth-based movements, which are very much more uh, identity-centered, or at least uh, an identity, a political identity that's reliant and reflective of a very specific kind of analysis of power and self and community. Um, but that even those uh, were rooted to very specific kinds of or the ones I focused on were rooted to very specific kinds of economic and 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 demographic contexts mm-hmm. um, and and so in in doing that um, that 's how they sort of connect up to to this longer story of of how Latinos are coming together and developing these. Instant, these, these institutions, these these, these spaces where uh, a pan Latino identity can be formulated and expressed, and right. and um, that that also sort of reflects how how it's not it's not just about or even much about language at all. Right? Mm-hmm. Are they calling themselves Latino here? Or right. Are they calling themselves Latino there, because um, it's a whole host of different terms that reflect that Mm pan-ethnicity, and also that pan-ethnicity doesn't necessarily shove away your own particular ethnic identity uh, at the same time, right? They're they're the the coalescence of of multiple kinds of identities coming together in political formation.
1: Nor did it, Uh, as you mentioned, nor did it exclude non-Latinos, right? I mean, you you mentioned this Latin that was very inclusive.
2: There right there is, is, is a perfect window into that unique demographic reality of San Francisco, Right, that even the Mission District, which is becoming increasingly Latino in in the post-war period, um, up to the the point later on where it would be probably a Latino majority, you know, in the period after uh, the book is written, but it's almost half in the in the period where the book stops. That means that half of the community is not Latino. Right. Right. Um, That that the Mission District is is primarily the thing that ties it together, and you 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 can see that now. In, in, in its and its continual battle against gentrification, right. what really ties it together is a is a cohesive class reality and yes, identity, yes.
0: Uh-huh. A
2: class experience. It is a working class community, mm-hmm. and it was a multiracial working class community at that time—a working class, multiracial, multiethnic community, multi generational community that had a Latino plurality to it.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It was also the who's 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 who's. Cultural changes and 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 whose, whose immediate present was being determined by by the Latino population, right? They were the fastest growing, and they were the ones who were clearly emerging as the the, the largest, uh, well, had already emerged as the largest. Um, and but so that that presents certain kinds of challenges, right? That if there's going to be a legitimate community organization that really does manifest itself into into real community power, where this uh, population can have some control over the space, some autonomy over the, the geographic space in which they're living, the neighborhood in which they're living, uh, that it had to do more than just bring Latinos together, bring that Latino diversity together. It had to also bring together that multiracial, multiethnic uh, population together, too. That's the only way it could have a, a legitimate right. uh, uh, presence, uh, an authentic uh, presence, uh, an authentic democratic kind of presence. Mm-hmm. And that's the story that I tell in, in a group called the Mission Coalition Organization, right. which is, mm-hmm. uh, in, in many ways, just like a, a wonderful, like, snapshot of, of the beauty of the politics of San Francisco in the post-war period, right. post-war war period post World war II period. The MCO is, is dependent upon, primarily, uh, um, two groups of people early on. Uh, one are the, the aging, homeowning population of the Mission District who are uh, white, European-American. Uh, many are, are immigrants, uh, but from European uh, countries. Uh, um, many are U.S.-born uh, Americans, and they're the, the property owners. And then the, the largest property renter class of, of Latinos. And that Latino group at that time was being represented by a, enough of a collection, there was enough of a, of a, of a healthy uh, political establishment inside of the mission and the city as a whole uh, that, that become the initial uh, sort of foundation of the Latino constituency inside of the MCO. And that's groups that are, that are still pretty diverse. There's political groups, there's groups who are, being, who are working through things like war on poverty, Mm-hmm. There's labor organizations, right? There's, there's things like MAPA and other political organizations that were part of the of the city. There's some Spanish speaking religious base there as well, um, but they're able to sort of come together too. And the, the first fight is really just opposing uh, redevelopment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's how it starts. The Mission District was was next in line uh, to, to to you know be gutted and turned into the city of the future uh, that San Francisco was coming. And uh, the the people, both the property owners and, and the, the, the Latinos and others inside of the Mission District, had seen what had happened to the redevelopment story of of the Western Edition, Fillmore District, of, of an African-American community that was essentially gutted and displaced. Uh, where urban renewal becomes urban removal, as, right. as the, the the language goes. And so they just wanted to stop it, and and they did. They come together effectively, and they they stopped it in that sort of diverse uh, group. Um, and then later what, what happens is the, the opportunity of a, of a war on poverty, essentially a war on poverty program uh, called the Model Cities Program, a federal funded way uh, that is a little bit bigger than just uh, redevelopment that it's really uh, more sort of a holistic renewal uh, inside of a community. It could be about jobs, it could be about health, it could be about uh, buildings, it can be about a whole bunch of things. Um, but it was about funding community improvements uh, through the community itself in in a typical war on poverty uh, fashion, right, that you have to have in a, a large, authentic constituency representing the community to get that funding. and. And so uh, when when the, the model cities possibility started get uh started getting talked about in the Board of Supervisors and City Hall, um, they they come together in the mission district again, uh, to not only uh this time just oppose outright uh redevelopment, but to control uh, model cities right. and model mm-hmm. cities will give them control over uh, a lot of funds. And, and th- it's creating this, uh, this multi-issued organization uh, that they call uh, eventually becomes called the mission coalition organization
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, where they're doing the work uh, on the issues that they want funded through model cities while they're also fighting for control of that model cities program um, that represents uh, clearly one of like the high points of, of, the mission district story uh, of the last century i mean it, it it involves a critical mass of that community it involves a, a super supermajority of the community organizations of that neighborhood uh it's a it's a multi issued organization it works on on coalition it has this representative structure uh where in the case of latinos you see a lot of the diversity being represented uh, they they create a vice president position for, for all these different kinds of groupings, like elderly and youth, there's a Mexican American, there's a, a Central American, there's a, a Salvadoran, uh, Nicaraguan, uh, vice president, and, and mm-hmm. everybody knew what those terms would mean, right? Like the Central American wouldn't be, uh, filled by a, a Salvadoran, right? That the, the Latin American wouldn't be filled by a Mexican, right? The, right. They, they, but they, they create this organizational structure that literally gives every identified constituency space. At the at leadership table, um, and and they they create campaigns uh, campaigns around the issues that they uh, were were most concerned about. Uh, I mean, I think they they do it in a in a creative and and in a in a in a really effective way as well. I give you an example of of those. I mean, I think two two really great stories of them. The first is there was a there was an adult theater uh, right there in the heart of the Mission District, in the heart of the commercial area of the Mission District. Uh, in this time period and, and more and more, of course, the, the mission at this time are, are, are families. Um, they don't want that theater there, but you know, this is the sort of slummy part of town to the city of San Francisco. And they want to get that, that adult theater, uh, pushed out of town. And, uh, the way that they do it is they, uh, they dress people up as nuns and they give them cameras and as people walk into the theater, they take pictures of them.
0: Mm-hmm, and if mm-hmm. people
2: are parked these pictures of the car, and they hand out flyers saying that we 're going to you know tell your 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 families that you come here or tell your local priest or minister that you come here right the, the people who were dressed as nuns were not nuns right the uh, were were not nuns the The cameras didn 't even have film in them, Right. but this is a way of of them finding these kinds of creative forms of theater almost to to express their agency over that space. This is right. our community, right? This, is, this should be something that meets the needs, meets the entertainment needs even of our community.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and another is, right. is,
2: is their, their, uh, their jobs effort. Um, their, their jobs committee, their employment committee was uh, really their, their, their largest success. They would have the, the largest uh, grouping of people involved in it on a weekly basis. Um, the reason was is that they it developed this really interesting uh, point system, um, and that point system only came after uh, uh, their success in in negotiating with local employers for for jobs, jobs for youth, jobs for adults. Uh, one of the first campaigns, I had the the, the really just great fortune of interviewing uh, very early on, like the very first interview I did in in, uh, in the late '90s was with a man named Mike Miller. Mike Miller is, is, uh, is a wonderful San Franciscan. <laughs> mm-hmm. He was the, he was the organizer of the, 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 the organizer behind, uh, for the Mission Coalition organization. He was mm-hmm. their hired organizer. I would just say he's not the, the head of it, right? He, but right? he's The person who comes in to do the, the actual grassroots organizing work, uh, for it as, as an employee of them. Uh, Mike, uh, has a, has a long history in the city. He was, he was part of the, the Berkeley movement known as Slate, uh, that, that takes over student government and that leads into the free speech movement. Mm-hmm. He was the, the head of the SNCC office, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee office in the city of San Francisco. Um, so a participant in, in that kind of avenue of it. He, he worked, uh, for Saul Alinsky and was a, a really close, uh, uh associate of, well, uh, he was very young, uh, compared to Saul, uh, towards the end of the time. <laughs> right. But, uh, he had a very personal relationship with Saul Alinsky, uh, as well as a professional one where he learned a lot from him and, and Michael. So at that time in the basement of his house had, uh, just a line of, I don't even know how many file cabinets it was, 15, 20, uh, that were just filled with all the records of his professional life. And, and so his, his archive and his oral histories became the foundation of, of this chapter. Wow. Um, and, 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 and um, and so so Mike Mike uh, helped uh, start to organize uh, this, this employment committee. They negotiated with uh, the local employers for jobs. And the first one was uh, – one of the first ones was uh, Wonder Bread. It had a faculty right. there in the, in the mission. Um, and they thought, well, this is a good opportunity for them to hire a couple of high schoolers. Let's mm-hmm. just get them to agree to hire some high schoolers. And that that and and that turned into some summer jobs, and that turned into some jobs after they went back to school for ad, adults, and and other employers were following suit, and they were thinking, well, how are we going to how are we going to uh, you know get these these jobs to people? Like, how are we going to choose who gets these jobs? Because part of the agreement was we would provide the person to you, you hire the person we provide. And what they do is they created the point system, and the point system was you got points by attending meetings of the MCO by doing work and participating in campaigns of the MCO by working in the office of the MCO. And the people who were in the employment line that had the most points were the first ones to get the job. Mm-hmm. So that just, you know, the, the employment committee just, you know, balloons overnight uh, once they start getting jobs into one of their largest committees. Uh, but but it's a, it's a, a wonderful reflection of, of what's at play. The MCO is, is not just uh, some sort of movement where people are protesting Right. For something from right city hall, um what they are doing what mike is is doing is is grassroots in a in a grassroots way he is organizing uh people together to create their own institutions that
0: mm-hmm. they control
2: their own committees, their own campaigns that they control in order to create the changes that they want in their community and uh and people come together in 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 that committee and and in many ways it's uh it, it's, the, it's like a, a crucible, right, of where all these various identities, interests, histories uh, get blended into to one another. And, and through, through the heat of, of that movement and those times, um, it gets to produce this, this very specific kind of Latino mission identity that that is the dominant one inside of that organization. Uh, even though it would be wrong to, to call that organization just a Latino organization.
0: Right. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's
2: much bigger than that, and has has many different, diverse constituencies involved in it as well.
1: Right, you and you mentioned that you mentioned earlier that 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 the MCO is a great window into the you know politics and, and movements of San Francisco at the time. Uh, I also found it very encouraging uh, and a reminder of of what's possible and how to build broad. Coalitions that address the needs of communities and, and working people and engage them in the democratic process. So I definitely think it's a, it's, it's, it's part of one of those, um, it's a part of history that we can really, it deserves reading. For the contemporary era and thinking about okay, how can we apply this to the current situation? Because this is that's the reality in in many of you uh, know our cities and urban centers, you know, throughout the country. I mean, despite the fact that the Latino population has boomed and uh, is uh, becoming the predominant minority community of of most major metropolitan centers, still in their need to address issues that are important to their communities, right? They're There's the need to build broader-based coalitions that allow people to work with you and identify with these issues beyond just the sense of ethnic identity. Right, Tomas, so thanks again for uh, taking the time out of your busy schedule. I I appreciate uh, all the discussions that we've had about your your book and these really fascinating uh, topics and different ways Latinidad was established in San Francisco. Uh, I was wondering if you could wrap up our, our time together. I'm very interested. I know you have a new project that you're working on, and I was wondering if you could spend a few moments talking about that.
2: Sure, thank you. Thanks for the, the chance to do that. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a little different of a, of a project, um, but it's one that's still uh, very close to my heart. Uh, I'm writing a, a book on the, easy way to talk about it is the impact of the Vietnam War on Latino communities.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
2: uh, and that's been uh, my work for the last... Four years really, uh, collecting oral histories with, uh, Chicano and Latino Vietnam veterans currently here in California. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm also interviewing, uh, their families, uh, family members, as well as children. Um, and the, the goal here isn't to, to write a, a book of war stories, but really to, uh, think about the myriad ways that the war impacted, uh, Chicano community formation, Latino community formation in the Southwest, uh in the 40 years since the war ended um, and and also to to i mean really clearly it's sort of unavoidable it's so it's so clear it's to be able to to use the life experiences of these families uh as a window into the history of, of this generation of baby boomers uh coming of age in the 60s as well so it's it's uh, it's it's, uh, it's a much bigger thing than i i think uh than just sort of uh Telling, uh, recounting, or, or even celebrating sort of war stories and war service. That's where really they're looking at how uh, communities' uh, economic and political uh, histories are are shaped by uh, family members' participation inside of inside of the military in this time period. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's, as I said, it's a personal story because it's, it's, it's very much my own. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: uh,
2: I'm the, I'm born in 1972 and my father's a, a Vietnam veteran.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, my, my, his older brother, my uncle, is a, is also a Vietnam veteran. Uh, probably growing up, a, every other male I knew, every other adult male I knew was, was a, a Vietnam vet. Uh, you know, most of the dads in the great school I went to were Vietnam veterans. Wow. Uh, it wasn't until, uh, a little bit later on, you know, that, when you're a kid and you realize, wait a minute, everybody's dad's not a Vietnam veteran? <laughs> it, 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 it's, a, it's, it's, I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, you don't expect a hundred percent, but right. it, it felt way bigger than, than the, I mean, it's only 10% of that generation. Right. Only mm-hmm. 10% of the males of that generation. Uh, uh, participated in in the Vietnam War, like wow. uh, you know, the, the specter of Vietnam hung over that generation so yes. much. Yes, Uh, that that uh that it, you you know, I I still find it a little shocking that considering that the the cultural social history that we talk about, that ninety percent of them, you know, never got entangled in in, in this business.
0: Right. That's um, that's a, that's a um, striking so understanding statistic. That, that
2: that that experience uh of of not just you know individually. Uh, with these many individuals, what, what looked like, you know, as a small kid, uh, disproportionate, although I wouldn't call it that, I wouldn't have had a sense of that then, but, you know, from my memory of what I thought of as a, as a kid, what, what I could see is that disproportionate kind of way, uh, that inequitable, unequal way that, that Latinos, and Latinos were involved in this war. But also, I think that kind of like, uh, understanding is, is kind of part of that, that larger story I'm talking about. It's, it's mm-hmm. not just about uh, that structure and, and the way that it impacts individuals, but how it also impacts the larger kind of community, uh, where, where a critical mass perhaps, mm-hmm. inside of the radios of the Southwest, uh, of, of our communities, uh, have this as a common story, as a thread. Right. So it ties us all up. Uh, and, and what's the long-term kind of impact of that, uh, in, in all the kinds of ways that, that, that uh, we need to think about.
1: Oh, that sounds great. And that's definitely another. I know work has been done, uh, within, um, you know, Chicano and Latino studies on, on the, on Vietnam War, but your, your approach to it definitely sounds novel and very interesting and, uh, and much needed work. Uh, that statistic you just cited was sh- striking to me that only 10% of that generation actually served in the war. That's, um, uh, in, in my own direct family, I don't, neither my father nor my, nor his, uh, his brother served in the war, but they were, they were so much, you know, affected by it, you know, and, and mobilized, uh, you know, to activism and and their eventual professionalization, as we discussed earlier. So, uh, definitely look forward to reading that and hopefully having you back on when it's uh, when it's done. Oh,
2: oh thank you. I, I I would jump at the chance. I Appreciate it. <laughs>
1: Great. Hey, Tomasco. Again, I appreciate your time, and I encourage our listeners to get a copy of your book San Francisco, uh, Latinos at the Golden Gate and to read it and discuss it with others and again appreciate very much uh, you taking moments of your day today yeah, my pleasure, thanks for having me certainly thanks again for tuning in to new books in Latino Studies I'm David James Gonzalez the host of the channel and you've been listening to my conversation with Tomas Summer sandoval about his recent book Latinos at the Golden Gate creating community and identity in San Francisco published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2013 again if you would like to contact us at New Books in latino studies please do you can reach us either on facebook or by sending an email to newbooks in latino studies at gmail.com